Welcome to The Secret Life of Dietitians. I'm Laura Poland. And I'm Amy Keller. We've talked a little bit about intuitive eating on the podcast, but today I thought we'd go back to the very beginning. How do you raise an intuitive eater? So let's start with our uh, article of the week. Yeah, uh, I sent this to you the other day, and you're like, "I have questions." Oh, about I have this. lots of <laughs> questions, and it's so interesting. Yeah, so I'm so excited for this. So there was an article that came out, study published in the beginning of April in the Annals of Internal Medicine about dietary supplements. Do you take a multivitamin? I actually do. Okay, I take a multivitamin, a uh, women's formula. Okay. Nothing fancy. Okay. Do you know why? Why do you take it? I do it for insurance. Okay. Although I really don't know why. Because I feel like, feel like you know, if you have a balanced, healthy diet, you really don't right. need a supplement. Well, you are not alone. According to this study, mm-hmm. and this was on about 30,000 adults who participated in the NHANES survey. And we get a lot of information. Yes. If you've probably heard, seen studies about the NHANES survey, mm-hmm. get a lot of information from this particular survey. It went over, you know, many decades. And it was just um, like a questionnaire they sent to a bunch of people over a lot of different topics. Am I I think so. Yeah. And what happened is they, you know, they again, we get a lot of data from this particular mm-hmm. survey and yeah. then people use this to develop studies. And this one was the, uh, on dietary supplements. And what they found is that about half of people... Uh, in this particular survey, reported use of a dietary supplement over the previous 30 days, with 30 almost 38% of them reporting a multivitamin usage over okay. the previous 30 days. Okay, so 30% of those people reporting were about, using a yeah, multivitamin. About 38%. Others yeah. were probably using what, like a single? Single, like another single dietary okay. supplement. Okay. The most common vitamins that people were taking were vitamin C, vitamin E, vitamin D, I think which mm-hmm. you would expect yep. because it's gotten a lot of press. Yeah. Um, the most commonly used uh, minerals were calcium, zinc, and magnesium. But what was very interesting about this study is that they did analyze their food intake using that food frequency questionnaire, or, or excuse me, a dietary recall, okay. um, which is a really pretty reasonable way to assess intake. Mm-hmm. And what they found is that when supplement use was not counted into their nutrient intake, the Uh people that were taking the supplements still had a better overall nutrient profile. Interesting. So it goes back to what you were thinking. (laughs) Yeah. The people that were taking the supplements. Like me. Maybe didn't need to be taking the supplements because they were eating a pretty good diet. Yep. So we see that health effect, right? You know, we absolutely do. It's yeah. called that healthy people mm-hmm. effect, or you mm-hmm. hear that term, yeah. where people who are engaging in some of these behaviors, right, maybe don't need to, right, but they do it because they are health conscious. And the supplement industry is like a billion. What is it? Trillion? Oh, it's 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 multi billion dollar industry. industry at this point. <laughs> and I was actually reading. I was reading a, a another blog post today that the FDA is not even necessarily aware of all the dietary supplements that are for sale. Right. They don't regulate them. That's right. one thing to remember, and we'll do this on a future podcast. Mm-hmm. But the other thing is that the FDA is not even necessarily aware of everyone that's out there for sale, which I, is a little yeah, scary. It is. It's a little scary. Yep. But what's really interesting about this study, so we talk mm-hmm. about people who are taking it, had a better over neutral, overall nutrient profile, mm-hmm. but excess intake of certain minerals uh-huh. was associated with 
an increased risk of dying from cancer, in particular calcium. So taking a calcium supplement over 1,000 milligrams a day or more uh-huh. was actually linked with an increased risk of dying from cancer. And this scares me because right. I actually had a summer <laughs> with broken bones from a yes. triathlon <laughs> training that I did okay. that went wrong. Um, fell off my bike, mm-hmm. broke a couple bones, but didn't realize it. Mm-hmm. So I'm healing those bones, and I think probably not focused on getting enough calcium because I didn't know my bones were broke. Mm-hmm. Ended up with foot fractures mm-hmm. and fractures in my foot. So I had bone fractures all summer, you know. Mm-hmm. And and so we did some testing and found out that my bone density was low. So I'm on a calcium supplement right, right. now. Right. And I think, you know, so. there are reasons to supplement. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the interesting thing is I think a lot of people feel like, oh, I should just take some calcium because I'm a woman sure. and I'm maybe premenopausal and I should just be taking this. So but maybe really it's, if you're already a, healthy and you're taking it, but we really don't know no, from this study. Right? We don't right? know that necessarily yeah. that if you had a deficient uh, okay. calcium or if you had inadequate calcium in your diet. What's interesting, though, is that that risk was not seen with calcium from the diet. And we see this with with kidney stones. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. calcium in the diet does not cause kidney stones. Calcium from supplements sure can. Right. So that's the interesting thing is that supplements and food are not equal. They're not. Every study I've ever seen, I've seen a vitamin. There's a famous vitamin A study, I think. Right. Or vitamin C and smokers. Right. And, yeah. Oh, vitamin A. You know, it was vitamin, vitamin A. a. Yes, they had stopped that study. <laughs> exactly. They had stopped the study because it was causing... It was causing um, increased death, death risk. Right. Smokers, absolutely. <laughs> so. um, the other one that was interesting from this study is that vitamin D levels, and of course a lot of people take vitamin D because, again, mm-hmm. they've heard that we're all vitamin D deficient right. or, you know, we live in Ohio and so, you know, it's mm-hmm. cloudy today, so I'm not maybe getting the vitamin D from the sun that yeah. I, I should... This was interesting that they had said that vitamin D supplementation in excess of 10 micrograms a day or about 400 IU, which is not okay. a very high dose no, it's of vitamin not. D. Yeah, 2,000 um, I'm seeing, 4,000. Yeah, I see higher than that yeah. even. Was an increased risk of both all-cause and cancer mortality. Now, wow. important to note, this was for people with normal vitamin D levels. So if you have normal vitamin D, there really is no reason to be supplementing. Mm -hmm. And if you are supplementing and you have a higher, a a vitamin D level higher than 50, you need to ask your doctor if you should continue to supplement just for the heck of it. Right. You know, or can you go off of it and have the level retested? So there are certainly people who have malabsorptive conditions like celiac disease, like we (laughs) talked about last week, um, or people who have dietary customs and practices that do not, you know, allow them to have a balanced diet or Mm -hmm. vegans or, you know, whatever that may benefit from supplementation. But the vast majority of us who have a normal balanced diet Right. Do not need an insurance policy. We don't. <laughs> so I will go home and stop taking my multivitamin because there is absolutely no reason. I mean, yeah. I had a big salad for lunch today. There's no right. reason for me to take a multivitamin I, on yeah. top of that. I got my folic acid at lunch. Right. <laughs> I don't need to take it. I do not need to take it in my supplement. Yep. All right. Okay. Well, this is good. This kind of leads me into the topic that I wanted to talk about today, too, because I've been researching and kind of reading a book on intuitive eating. I think I mentioned that mm-hmm. in a previous podcast. And I have been, I, my 
job, my current full-time job, is working with uh, a children's organization, nonprofit, mm-hmm. and we do nutrition education. And one of the things that I think I'm realizing is there's we're not doing enough education with our infants and, and starting that healthy relationship up. So mm-hmm. now that I'm getting into this intuitive eating and I'm doing some research, and in the child realm of things, we call it more responsive feeding is kind okay. of how it's a little different terminology. But basically, when I'm looking down at it, it's just intuitive eating for your child, right? Or okay. your infant. And it's learning that division of responsibility when it comes to meals. So now that's an, uh, a term that if you're in dietitian land, yeah. <laughs> you're probably familiar with yep. that Ellen Satter, who is a famous dietitian and for a feeding, long time. And feeding therapist. Yeah, she's, she's kind of she's kind of like you know our rock star. She was my she was a rock star back when I was in college. I mean, and, she's yeah, amazing. A, that's yeah. a, that's a term that you hear a lot in her mm-hmm. work. And um, I truly I raised two boys using that roadmap, and it is so powerful. So tell me a little bit about what the division of responsibility is. Sure. So those the, who might not know. The division of responsibility simply states that as a parent, your job is to provide the what, the where, and the when, when they're very young, in terms of meals, right? So okay. you provide what is served, you're providing the healthy balanced diet, mm-hmm. you are providing when it happens and where it happens. Okay. The child's responsibility is whether and how much. Ooh, that's tough as a parent, isn't it? It is, right? How what many if they battles? Don't, what if they don't eat their vegetables? What am I supposed to do about exactly. that? Exactly. Exactly. So yeah. it's learning to trust your child that they will eat and get what they need and huh. that they know they know from the get-go when they're hungry and when they're full. And there's cues that we can pick up on from that. So I've come across a video that really sh- demonstrates what those hunger cues and and hunger cues and fullness cues are in your child. So we'll, we'll put that in our show notes. Yeah, we'll put that in yeah. the show notes, and I recommend people watch that, especially if you have infants and you're just starting to feed and, and that type of thing, because we're talking about infants here, not children, of course. But I, I do think that... We need to learn to trust our kids a little bit more. The cool thing I always thought about what I learned with that division of responsibility with Mm -hmm. Ellen Sater is that at least then it takes away all those fights that you have over the dinner table. Absolutely. I was actually talking to a friend about this, and she said Mm -hmm. they were struggling with dessert Uh at their house. And I'm sure she won't mind if I tell this story. She said, Mm -hmm. you know, they were struggling with the kids wanting dessert and not eating their meal and that they were kind of, or they were eating to please mom and dad so they could get dessert. Uh-huh. And so she took some of, of the Ellen Satter's work and put the dessert with the meal. Right. And the kids could eat it whenever they want. And it's ended some of those food fights uh-huh. at the table. Yeah. Kids can eat the dessert when they want to eat the dessert. They still finish their, they still eat their vegetables. They right. might even eat their vegetables after they eat dessert. Yeah. But if they know dessert is not conditional correct upon feeding you know eating their meal mm-hmm. she said it's it's really been quite yeah interesting and that's intuitive eating yes. that's the same thing for us as the parents too that we right. have to get over is nothing's off the table right so right. if we don't have those restrictions of around food then yeah we don't have those issues interesting Okay, so once you have the division of responsibility, then the thing I want to talk about today is any parents out there that who have infants, and you're starting this off, 
you're starting to create an intuitive eater. Okay, so it starts with the introduction of solids. Okay. It actually starts with when your infant is born and you start feeding them, whether mm-hmm. you're breastfeeding or formula feeding, you listen to those hunger and fullness cues, right? Mm-hmm. And so you help them learn that they are responsible for that okay. from the get-go. Right. We all get excited about introducing solids to our infants, and mm-hmm. you know it's a very exciting time, and you, you want them to have a great relationship with food. First of all, when you introduce solids is you want the child to be ready for it. And okay. I think that a lot of that information is out there and, and physicians do a really good job of saying you're not really supposed to introduce solids until your child is able to sit and respond mm-hmm. and, and interact at that meal time. So they have to be able to turn their head, right? If we're going to teach them to understand when they're, you know, and, and listen to when they're full, mm-hmm. we have to not be putting food in their mouth and they can't turn away. Right. Right. That makes so, sense. Developmentally, they need to be ready. And we have to understand that feeding a child solids is secondary to the breast and the formula at that point. We, right. we still, for the first year of the life, really all they really need is formula and breast, breast milk. Um, mm-hmm. So it's, think about your introduction to solids as just basically teaching them some new skills. Right, almost experimentation. Yeah. 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 And I think when you think of it that way and as a supplement, then you're going to be feeding their baby exactly what they need. Right. Like I mentioned, everything that a child does around their mealtime is learned and is something that they have to learn. So they have to learn how to swallow. They have to, and initially, and, and when you start putting food on a spoon and feeding mm-hmm. it, you know, they have to learn that. They have to learn how to, to deal with that. And so the other thing to think about and keep in mind when you're feeding your child for the first time is, is that you also want to be aware of allergies. And so you want to be very methodical when you're introducing mm-hmm. foods and solids to them too. Have those guidelines changed? I see them, that they, <clears throat> they seem like they sort of change frequently. I, th- I think of, you know, when you're supposed to introduce egg or, or mm-hmm. anything like that. Yeah. Has that, has that changed? Yeah, the new rule, actually, the, the recommendation now uh, has been in the news mostly for peanuts. They're recommending mm-hmm. you're introducing peanuts actually before one year of age. Wow. Because they're finding, they're wondering if some of the big outbursts with peanut allergies occurred because we held off mm-hmm. on giving it to the children in the first place and, and we should have been giving it to them. And they're seeing that this mm-hmm. may have a, a positive effect. I remember when I was um, in my birthing class at the mm-hmm. hospital, the, the the nurse very sternly told me I was not to be eating peanut butter when mm-hmm. I was pregnant. And oh, or maybe even when, when, when I and maybe also maybe not when I was should breastfeed I should not eat peanut butter when I was breastfeeding because oh, I would wow. give my child a peanut allergy uh, and I remember uh, thinking well that doesn't sound right right, right. <laughs> yeah I think I think exposure exposure is, is, is important, important. Yeah. yeah that I'm that's interesting that you say that like this is not my expertise 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 mm-hmm. I'm working on renewing mm-hmm. myself into this field mm-hmm. and. Uh, yeah, I ate peanut butter. I eat peanut butter on a daily basis, and right. I do not think I stopped when I was pregnant. So right. either right. time. Yep. So, and that is an interesting good point too. If you are still breastfeeding while you're introducing solids, and understand or before you even introduce solids, what you eat actually the um, flavor profiles can be passed along in the breast milk. Okay. So it's 
uh, good to have, you know, mom needs to have that healthy diet to begin with when they're pregnant and then when they're um, nursing the baby. And that helps set the baby up for uh, good success too. And then, so when we talk about introducing salads, I don't think it's changed that much since when you, you know, what we learned. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was finding some different things on the internet, uh, different suggestions, and I didn't find it as helpful as I felt like I got when I was in school as a dietitian. So when we went through school, it was pretty much laid out. This is the order in which you should introduce salads. And this is, and I'm finding on the internet just a variety of mm-hmm. of recommendations. Right, doesn't matter whether it's fruit or vegetables first. It doesn't matter if you do cereal or vegetables and fruits first. It mm. doesn't. Um, so it, it's just so all over the place. Right. No, no wonder parents are confused. And that's exactly. And that's where I want to be doing more research into this and learning more about it. Um, so what I'm going to do is talk about what I know and what I've learned from Ellen Sater and from my um, education as becoming a dietitian. Because I raised two healthy eaters, I think I want to say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, I believe this this is the way I did it. And I still feel strongly that it is important to introduce salads in this methodical way. Which is, when I introduced salads, we started with a just a bland like rice cereal, mm-hmm. oatmeal, or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. So you start with your cereals that are pretty bland, uh, so there's no sweetness or anything to it. That's okay. You want your child to get used to unflavored. Right. And really, the cereal is a good texture to start with to get them used to the texture. Right. R- remember, they're learning everything here. Right. And so starting with those, next is introducing vegetables. And I feel very strongly about this. Okay. And I've seen a lot of, I've been, you know, doing some research and I'm seeing things that say that maybe it doesn't matter whether you do fruits or vegetables first. I need to see that study because I truly believe that it does. Mm-hmm. It, it, a child is predisposed to to like the flavor of sweet, of right? Yeah. We all are. We all do. Yeah. <laughs> We're not used to eating bitter, and Mm -hmm. so it's important to introduce those bitter vegetables that are good for us, like green beans, Mm -hmm. uh, peas, spinach, anything like that that's bitter before introducing even carrots or sweet potatoes and things like that. So I recommend introducing your bitter vegetables, then go to your sweeter vegetables, like sweet potatoes and carrots. And remember, for allergies purposes, you want to introduce only green beans. Right. You want to wait for a few days, so then they're just doing, you know, you do the cereal for a few days, then Mm -hmm. you're doing vegetable. As much as we want them to have that balanced, healthy diet, we don't need it on day one as an infant. Absolutely. (laughs) So... I recommend uh, taking your time with this and understanding we're testing for allergies. They're learning things. We're learning things, what works and what doesn't. Now, a child is, uh, when you serve them a bitter vegetable the first time, they're going to spit it out and maybe make a face. That doesn't mean they don't like it. Right. Or that they can't learn to like it. Right. How many exposures? I think it was it. How many is it? Is it a dozen? So it it depends on your age. Okay. So this is what's interesting. So the research actually is out there. 
there on how many times you need exposed to something. And when you're, um, I think it's one to two years of age, it's something like seven to 10 exposures. And these are neutral exposures, not like cheerleading and bribing, but Correct. truly neutral exposures. Yes, yes. You yeah. don't need to do anything other than have that food on the plate. Right. And again, it just to have it on the plate and maybe they touch it they don't have to eat it that's an exposure Mm -hmm. right but when you start getting older and it and it can be up to you know it's like 10 to 15 exposures for your you know school-aged kids and then when you get into teenagers it's pushing 20 exposures as adults of course you know we're really set in our way so i'm sure exposures have to be even more so so are you, um, I guess this brings up the thing that I see a lot of parents and a lot of parenting advice blogs or magazines mm-hmm. is that one bite rule. How do you feel about that? I, I know how I feel about that. How do you feel about it? Yeah. Well, again, I I don't believe in the one bite rule. Me neither. <laughs> I prefer so, that they just, again, like I said, they can ju- get exposure just by smelling it right. and touching it and playing with it. They don't need to eat it. Right. And when we are telling them they have to do one bite, guess what? We've we've ruined that division of responsibility. Right. Guess what? How much? We yes. just stepped over our line. Exactly. Yep. It's their job, how much and whether, right? Right. And so we can't dictate that. So I really do think, I know it's scary, parents that are out there and you're already serving, you know, your kids and and, Mm -hmm. and it's tough. But that's the good news, too, is if you didn't do this, you know, introduction of salads by the Laura method or whatever we want to call it, you know, you, it's it's okay because we can continue to expose them and eventually they might like it. So I can definitely say that happened with my kids on several occasions with different things. Right. So. Very good. So I'm talking about this, and I'm so I'm telling you, the best way is to just introduce one solid at a time. Mm-hmm. And I know people who work in WIC departments, public health, this message gets out there mm-hmm. quite a bit. But obviously not to everyone. So I think only certain populations are hearing this message. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's, for example, I went to the Kroger that's near me to mm-hmm. look at baby food the other day. And... All the baby food jars, there were no plain green beans in plain sight when I looked. Yeah. Yeah. You, so you can't find a plain vegetable. Most of your vegetables are mixed with something else. Huh. In fact, there was a, a, a recent research article that I became aware of, and I believe they reported that 10% or less of the baby food on the market these days contains a bitter vegetable. Wow. And only 1% just has that plain, like single, ingredient. single ingredient vegetable. So what we need is single ingredient vegetables. And we've obviously got a population that is not requesting them. Of course, and it must so, not be selling. Because it's not selling. It was There was a jar of green beans, I will tell you. You can find them. <laughs> there was one jar, but it was on the bottom shelf. And wow. it was... Only one manufacturer. That's not crazy. Not even all the manufacturers were doing that. And you know, Kroger's a good-sized store. You go to a it smaller is. market, maybe in a 
you know, a smaller town that right. has fewer choices. That's, right. That's a, now, yeah. my, my coworker went to Walmart, and Walmart had a variety of choices of single vegetables, single fruits, single... Interesting. And, you know, so this is how I recommend introducing it is single. As much as we'd like to have those mixtures and be, you know, have fun with our flavors, you know, I, I, I get it. I like to try new recipes and I like new things, but... We don't need to do that with our infants. We need them to learn to like the plain ones first. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Very good. All right. That's just kind of where I'm at with this. I, I was talking to people at OSU mm-hmm. yesterday, professors, and I think there just needs to be a little bit more research out there. From okay. talking to the professors at OSU, there really isn't a lot, and it's really hard to control. It's one of those studies that's going to be very difficult to do. Right. Is what you kind of need to do is look at adults but then you have to know how did they get introduced to food. Right. So that's going to be that's a really difficult study, but one that I would love to do. I would love to know if they were served, uh-huh. you know, fruit first. Are they more preference to, you know, fruits and less vegetables in the diet? Right. You know, or, I mean, there's more to it than just the way it's introduced there, too. There's genetics and and. Um, you know, the way our taste buds are. So it's very difficult to control and do these research studies. So it might be difficult, but... Yeah, it would be, I think, tough to probably look back. Yeah. Talk about food records. I really do. I really do think that the most important thing is to consider that when you're introducing solids, number one is it's just it's secondary to their most important nutrients at the time, which is breast or formula. Well, and I think from speaking from somebody, I mean, who breastfed, I know that when solids came along, I I could always tell if I was giving too many solids because my milk supply would go into the toilet. (laughs) Like, I mean, I would be like, wait a second, I'm no longer making enough milk. Right. And it's because he was eating too many Mm -hmm. solids. Yeah, yeah. And I needed to be breastfeeding more than I was. Yeah. So totally get that. Yeah. And then... Keeping in mind that the infant is just learning during this process, and then we're also right. looking out for allergies. Yes. And I think that's one of the best ways to start our babies off to be these intuitive eaters and right. to have a good relationship with their their meals. Well, and if you think about it, a kid is a, a naturally an intuitive eater. You yeah. know, a kid you have, you know, I, I remember this from a, a book that I've recently read that, you know, kids sitting at their high chair with their blueberries and their avocado and their black bean isn't sitting there think, does this fit into my macros? Right, you right. Know, or does this, does, <laughs> does this make too many carbs? You know, they don't think that. They eat no. and they and they pick and they play and they squish yeah. and they, mm-hmm. you know, they don't always get everything in their mouth and the dog's getting half the food. Right. And they're also really good at leaving the table when they're full they you right. can't make them you know if you think about when you see an infant that's being breastfed mm-hmm. when they're done they turn their head exactly and you can't force them no. and I, I, mean, I have personal mm-hmm. experience with my son with that right. I could not force him to right. take any more milk right. they fall asleep right mine would fall asleep and then right like, and then you, oh they're, yeah they're done they're done <laughs> they're done yeah and, and isn't that and they the, know that children are somewhere very naturally intuitive really somewhere are. along the line we as parents sort of interfere with that yes and, and turn them into love Intuitive and the years. research I've seen shows that we're doing that, and by age five, they've lost that ability. Yikes. Yeah. Yikes. So they did some interesting studies of, you know, <laughs> kind of free-ranging kids in rooms, and they do figure out and they eat the right amount of calories. Right. When my kids were... You've got so many things going on with a, ch- a child that's growing. So you've mm-hmm. got growth spurts happening, especially mm-hmm. that first year of life. 
when my kids would go through a growth spurt, I couldn't feed them enough. Exactly. I remember cluster feeding in the evenings uh-huh. where he would just nurse all evening. Yes. Like, it's like, nice. okay, we're done. Right. 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 No peace on how much. Right. Right. <laughs> and, um, but then, you know, if, my kids, you know, maybe outside of growth spurts, if they had like a big breakfast and a lunch, and sometimes they wouldn't eat much at dinner and it would drive me crazy. Right. I'm like, why aren't you eating? But they knew they had had plenty earlier in the day. Right. And so they didn't need it. And right. they really, they can regulate that and they can do that. Right. You know, if you talk to these patients, and I, I, I hear this now, and maybe you do too, with patients who are overweight, adult patients who are overweight, mm-hmm. um, often they were forced to be members of the Clean Play Club yep. as children. Yeah. And I'm struggling with that myself. I mean, I hear that a ton. Oh, you had to finish everything, or you had to eat this many bites of vegetables so you could get dessert. Right. And, and yikes. And I think we somehow turn kids away from that intuitive eating so early and then they lose that ability to Mm self-regulate and they stop trusting their hunger and fullness cues and that's where I think to me that's the genesis of Of so many issues with food yeah and our obesic obesogenic society right people have lost that ability we've lost that ability and so I felt like if we talked about this a little bit today, like I just felt like I needed to get it off my chest. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> so after going to the grocery topic. store, I, I mean, a great topic. my kids are in college. Right. So well, I haven't, I haven't shot for baby for food long in a decade. So yeah. <laughs> but it ties to me back to that intuitive eating that I'm learning about for myself too, right. and I'm realizing how hard it is for me. And I just felt like if we could get our listeners who might be introducing salads to their mm-hmm. kids to get you off on the right you know start as soon as possible absolutely or the you know right foot as soon as possible absolutely well if you have questions about today's show invite you to uh, email us at dish at secretliferd.com and of course that also leads you to our website www.secretliferd.com Again, we welcome your show ideas. We welcome your topic ideas. Again, if you have even articles you'd like us to help you unpack, we'd love to do that. Um, And again, we look forward to seeing you next time uh, wherever you get your podcasts.